Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. We will be this morning in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 10. These are the words of God. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and, brought with, and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. O Lord our God, we pray now, by your Spirit, bring us your word in power and in richness and in truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week we saw how Peter started bringing into particular focus individuals other than the Lord Jesus himself. And last week he brought Peter and Judas into special focus for us to consider. This week and next week as well, Matthew brings another group of people into special focus, and that is the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Now, when it says the chief priests and elders, what it's referring to is the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of Israel, consisted of 70 men comprised of chief priests and elders, and among the elders you also would have had scribes who were experts in the law. And one of the things that Matthew brings out about the chief priests and the elders here is that they are the ones, humanly speaking, who were primarily responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. They plotted Jesus' arrest, they paid Judas to betray him, they solicited false testimony to frame him, they wrongly convicted him and pronounced him worthy of death, and now they are plotting and planning exactly how they will go about pressuring the Roman governor into doing something he isn't going to want to do, which is put Jesus on a cross, because from the Roman perspective, Jesus hasn't done anything worthy of death. And anyway, this plotting and planning is what verse 1 is talking about. This is not a different meeting. This is the second phase of the same meeting that has been going on all through the night at the chief priest's residence. The first phase was putting Jesus on trial and condemning him. The second phase is plotting and planning how they're going to get Pilate to do what they want him to do. Now, in all of these events leading to the cross, you always have to keep in mind the divine perspective and the human perspective. From the divine perspective, God the Father is giving his son, 
to go to the cross. And the Son is giving himself to go to the cross. And the Holy Spirit is empowering the Son to enable him to go to the cross because it is necessary. There is no other way to cancel out the debt of sin that holds the human race in legal bondage to death and through death to Satan. So that is what God is doing in the cross. He is accomplishing salvation. But from the human perspective, you have sinful people, like the chief priests and elders, that are each making their own choices for their own personal reasons in putting Jesus on the cross. And their purposes have nothing to do with salvation, but are simply to ensure that by whatever means necessary, Jesus is killed. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, the leaders were filling up the sins of the fathers. They're taking all the sins of the fathers of Israel down through the centuries, all the rebellion against God, the hardness, and so forth, and they're filling it up. They're topping it off. Everything is coming to a head. Because the cross of Christ is the turning point of all history. Not just the turning point for religious people. It is the turning point for all people, for all nations, for all of life. It is the turning point of all of history. And thus we see at this critical moment of history, both God's goodness and man's evil at their fullest. And so by looking at God giving his son to go to the cross, by looking at Jesus giving himself to go to the cross, we can learn a tremendous amount about the love and goodness of God. We can learn about the love and goodness of God elsewhere, but nowhere can we learn as much as we can at this point. By the same token, by looking at the chief priests and the elders putting Christ on the cross, we can learn a tremendous amount about evil. What are its core characteristics and motivations? How does it spin its web in our hearts and shape our attitudes and actions? And I think this is one of the main reasons Matthew focuses in on the chief priests and the elders the way he does. It's not just a matter of history. There are important lessons here for every single Christian in every single generation. So what do we learn about evil by looking at the chief priests and the elders. The first thing we learn is that evil is comfortable working in an environment we would not expect. Evil is comfortable working in an environment that is highly educated, highly cultured, highly moral from man's perspective, highly religious, even with the right God, and highly saturated with the word of God. Now, obviously, evil and the evil one, Satan, are also comfortable working in a pagan environment, an uneducated environment, a low-class environment, in a religious environment. But we would expect that. What is surprising is how comfortable they are working in the environment of God's covenant people. And this leads us to the second thing we learn about evil. Evil only rises to its full height in the presence of God's goodness. Evil only rises to its full height in the presence of God's goodness. You can see the dregs of sin on Skid Row. 
but you will only see its full capacity in the presence of God's goodness. The full capacity of sin is what Paul called in Romans 7, the sinfulness of sin. In other words, sin's true colors. Usually, in all the evil going on in the world, the real face of sin hides in the shadows. It hides in the background. It is in the presence of the goodness of God that you really see the face of evil. Paul says in Romans 7, if you really want to see sin's A-game, you have to watch how it operates with those things that most reflect God's goodness and grace. The things that are spiritual, the things that are holy, the things that are righteous and good. Things like God's word, God's people, God's house. And that is exactly what we see with the chief priests and the elders of Israel. And let me also add that this is where sin and Satan most want to be. In the house of God, in the people of God, and with the word of God. That's where he most wants to be. Because you see, the state house, the state house is not the salt of the earth or the light of the world. Washington, D.C., that's where all our eyes are fixed all the time. What's going on in Washington? Washington, D.C. is not the salt of the earth or the light of the world. God's people are. So being in and amongst God's people in the sanctuary of God with the word of God is the place that Satan wants to be more than any other place on the earth because he understands even if we don't, where the real center of power is. Where do we find Satan when we first see him in the Bible? In the sanctuary, in the Garden of Eden, with God's people. Talking about God's word. Has God said? Satan understands that if you want Sodoms and Gomorrahs, and Hitler's and Stalin's, you have to start in the church. You have to do something about the salt and the light. The third thing we learn about evil by looking at the chief priests and the elders is that its goal with God's people is to produce spiritual blindness and spiritual callousness or coldness. Evil's goal with regard to God's people is to produce spiritual blindness and callousness. You see, God has flooded the church with light. Satan cannot change that. So what he wants is blindness. God has flooded the church with love. Satan cannot change that. So what he wants is coldness, callousness. And those are exactly the characteristics we see with the chief priests and the elders in our text. The rulers here see very well that the money Judas throws down in the temple is blood money. But they are completely blind to the fact that they are the ones who put the blood on the money. They are very sensitive to the fact that the money needs to be properly categorized and accounted for so that the temple is not defiled. But they are completely callous to the fact that they have arranged to murder an innocent man. That doesn't bother them at all. And they are completely callous also to Judas, 
who was one of their own sheep. Aren't they the shepherds of Israel? Here's one of their sheep whose conscience is condemning him for what they together have done. But that bothers them not at all. Now this spiritual blindness and callousness we see with the leaders and the judgment that God is going to bring because of it is the point of the scripture Matthew quotes in verses 9 and 10. He says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Matthew here is actually quoting from two Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Zechariah. And he's mostly quoting from Zechariah. Now you may wonder, why doesn't he name Zechariah? Because it was the practice of Matthew and other New Testament writers often to only cite the names of major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And they would not name the minor prophets like Zechariah, but they knew that they are writing to Jewish people who are very familiar with the Old Testament and who will recognize where this is coming on, uh, coming from. So uh, the Jewish readership is going to recognize Jeremiah here as well. Anyway, the passage in Zechariah is an interesting one. It concerns a shepherd king whom Israel rejects. And part of the rejections involves Israel paying this shepherd king's 30 pieces of silver as his wage. In other words, saying, this is your worth. This is what we think you're worth. And 30 pieces of silver is an insultingly low wage. In other words, they do not value or appreciate the shepherd king whom God has sent. And of course, the shepherd king is Jesus. So God determines to judge Israel. And what he does is he removes the ministry of the shepherd king. He removes the blessings of the good shepherd, and he raises up a foolish and a worthless shepherd for Israel. A shepherd who cares nothing for the sheep. In fact, this shepherd eats the fat sheep. It eats the sheep instead of caring for the sheep. The shepherd is also blind in his right eye, and his right arm is withered. Now that's prophetic language for saying that this shepherd is spiritually blind, and therefore his arm is withered. He cannot rule or care for the sheep the way that he should. So instead of truly shepherding the sheep, the worthless shepherd eats the fat sheep. Now, the foolish, worthless, spiritually blind shepherd who cares nothing for the sheep is who? It's the chief priests and the elders of Israel. And the spiritual blindness and callousness are exactly what we see with them. And in Zechariah and Jeremiah, this kind of leadership is both a judgment on God's people and it sets God's people up for further judgment. And this is exactly what we will see 40 years after these events when 70 A.D. rolls around and Jerusalem lies in ruins. Now, as we turn to application, what I want to do is to talk about how this kind of spiritual blindness and callousness takes hold and grows in God's people. And the reason why I want to talk about this is that we are very susceptible to this kind of sin. And once it takes root, it plays havoc with God's people and with society as a whole. Because as I already said, we are 
the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Now, I want to set out some preliminary considerations to help us understand the way this works. First, we need to see that spiritual blindness is something that God gives people over to. Spiritual blindness is God's judgment for turning away from the light in some way. It is a progression from having eyes to see, but refusing to see, to not having eyes to see at all. And that's the progression we see with Israel in Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 12, God condemns Israel because she has eyes to see, but does not see. And she has ears to hear, but does not hear. Okay? She has eyes to see, but she refuses to see. He says that she's a rebellious house. So she has eyes to see, but she's rebellious, so she refuses to see. All right? By the time we get to Jesus' day, Israel no longer has eyes to see or ears to hear. In Ezekiel, she can see, but she won't see. By Jesus' day, she can't see. That's the way spiritual blindness works. And this is a chilling warning to all of us. Because if we won't see what God sets forth in his word, the day will come when we can't see it. The second thing we need to see is that spiritual blindness is a double blindness. Spiritual blindness is a double blindness. It blinds one to the light, and it blinds one to the fact that one is blind. Physical blindness, on the other hand, is only single blindness. Everyone who is physically blind knows it. Those who are spiritually blind don't know it. Indeed, what we see in Scripture is the more spiritually blind one becomes, the more convinced one becomes that one's spiritual eyesight is perfect. This is the phenomenon we see in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals the man who is born blind. It's all about the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness. The man born blind is physically blind. He has single blindness. He's blind and he knows it. But the leaders of Israel in that case are spiritual blind. They have double blindness. They're blind and don't know it. Moreover, they're blind and they think they can see perfectly. Third, we need to see that spiritually blind leaders, like we see with the chief priests and elders here, are a judgment for spiritually blind people. Spiritually blind leaders are a judgment for spiritually blind people. In other words, we get the leaders we deserve. So we can't point to the chief priests and the elders here and say, well, that's just a case of bad leaders. Bad leaders are God's judgment for bad people. And this means that turning away from God's light doesn't just start with leaders. It starts with people. And that's how we need to be concerned today. We need to be concerned for how spiritual blindness starts with us. And the final and fourth general consideration I want us to think about is that the blindness in the chief priests and the elders here is a very advanced form of spiritual blindness. It does us no good to say, well, that, we would never be like that. We'd never have blood money come into the church and see the blood on the money and not see the blood on our hands. We would never do that. We need to focus on how spiritual blindness starts, not how it ends. It ends in an egregious form. But that's not how it starts. It starts very subtly. 
it's not so glaring when it begins. And that's what we need to focus on. How does it begin in us? And so, to the point, to our application. How does spiritual blindness begin in, in, in us? How do we fight against it? Well, it begins with how we deal with God's word. Again, it begins with how we deal with God's light. And Jesus had a couple of different ways that he described how this begins. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 24, Jesus called this kind of blindness, straining at gnats and swallowing camels. You see the gnat, you don't see the camel. The leaders saw the blood on the money. They couldn't see the blood on their hands. Jesus also describes it as tithing your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, while neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. This is what he said the leaders do. He said, you tithe each one of your spices, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And we see that in the leaders here. The leaders were more concerned with the accounting category the blood money went under than with having put an innocent man on the cross. We need to understand what Jesus is and is not saying when he talks about straining at gnats and swallowing camels or tithing spices but neglecting the weightier matters of the law. We need to understand it because we're very susceptible of doing it and also because Jesus is typically misunderstood on this point. Jesus is not saying that swallowing gnats is a good thing. He is saying that there is a way of concerning yourself with gnats that will ensure that you swallow camels. And with camels, guess what? You get gnats too. Jesus is not saying to neglect the details of the law so that you can keep the weightier matters. In fact, he says that you ought to do both. Jesus is saying that there is a way of concerning yourself with the details of the law that will ensure that you neglect the weightier matters of the law. So what is the key? How are we to understand this? Here it is. This is what Jesus is really getting at. The law is not a collection of individual commands. It is an organic whole. Any approach that sees the law as a bunch of individual commands is going to pervert the law by pitting some commands against others or by specializing in certain commands and neglecting others. We have to see the law as God gave it, and that is as an organic whole. How do we do that? Well, Jesus used language that suggested the law is like a great tree. He said that all the law, not only the law, but the prophets, and law and the prophets, that's a phrase in the Bible that means the whole Old Testament. Okay? That meant the word of God as it existed in the first century. He says that not only the law, but all of the prophets too, hang on the two great love commands. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the two great love commands are the trunk of the tree. Everything else hangs on them, all the branches, all the leaves, all the fruit. And out of the trunk grow the three weightiest branches of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. So you've got this big tree trunk, 
the two great love commands, you have two massive branches growing out of that trunk, justice, mercy, and faith. Now again, justice and mercy and faith, we need to understand them in their scriptural richness. When we hear justice, mercy, and faith, we think justice, getting what we deserve, mercy, not getting what we deserve, faith, believing in Jesus, and that's it, we're done. It's a lot richer than that when you look at how these terms were used in the Old Testament. Basically, they all had to do with relationships because that's what the two greatest commands have to do with, relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with others. Justice meant doing right by the person you're in a relationship with, whatever that relationship is. Doing right by God in your relationship with Him. Doing right by your spouse in your marriage. Doing right by your children. Doing right by your parents. Doing right by your siblings, your coworkers, your friends, and so forth. That's justice. Mercy simply means basically the golden rule. Doing to others what you would have them do for you. In other words, genuinely seeking their good, putting their good before your own selfish interests. Genuinely seeking their good, that's mercy. And faith means faithfulness. It means being, you talk about a true friend, a friend who is true. You can always count on them, never gonna change, never gonna let you down. That's what faith is, it's faithfulness. So these three terms in the Hebrew Old Testament is basically a way of saying in a particular relationship that you give everything that is owed by virtue of the nature of that relationship. What do we owe to God? Everything. Everything. So you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Okay? That's doing right by God. That, that's applying the golden rule to God. That's being faithful to him. And you do the same thing in every relationship. They're talk, justice, mercy, and faith are three ways of talking about the loyalty, the devotion, the kindness, and the faithfulness that love demands of us toward God and others. So those are the three greatest branches coming out of the trunk. All the other branches, all the other commands, sprout out of those three great branches. Okay? Now here's the point Jesus is making. To apply any individual command in a way that disconnects it from the branches that support it is to disobey that command. To apply any individual command of God's word in a way that disconnects it from the branches that support it is to disobey that command. To biblically apply any individual command in a way that divorces it from the branches that support it is to misapply that command. So that that means is that if we want to be biblical in the way we apply and obey any individual command, it is necessary to bring into view the branches that support it and the trunk that supports all the branches. So there's, and that's what Jesus is saying about straining in gnats and swallowing camels or tithing and neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You're disconnecting the law. You're making it fight itself. You're ending up with a result in the name of the law that is completely contrary to the law. And this is how you have a people like the scribes and the Pharisees who are steeped in the law, who are all about living a God-honoring life. That's what they're all about. 
their version of a God-honoring life was a monstrosity. It's not the matter that, well, they fell short. They did a lot of things good, but they fell short. No. Jesus says, you're ugly. You're hideous. Your view of the Christian life is a monstrosity. It is not anywhere close to what God intends. And how do they get there? By taking an organic whole, the law, and dividing it up into individual little twigs that they carry around in their pockets or their purses or their briefcases or their packs. And that's what we tend to do too, isn't it, as Christians? We have God's word, we have a bunch of twigs, we carry them around in us, we get to a, different, a certain situation, we pull out a twig, we say, I am a good Christian. This twig applies here. I'm going to apply it. And we have it disconnected from the rest of God's word. There are two ways of disobeying the law. One is to just ignore it. Just put it out of mind. The other is to be zealous for obedience, zealous for the word of God, but to take God's individual commands in such a way that we divorce them from the greater commands that support them. When we take that approach, we're already on the wrong path. We're not going to end up where we should be. Let me use another analogy. If you want to shoot a gun accurately, you need two things. You need a front sight and you need a rear sight. And you have to line them up together. You have to look through the rear sight to the front sight with the target in the background. Otherwise, you're going to miss the mark. And what does is, what is the Word of God call missing the mark? Sin. That's one of the prime definitions of sin in the Bible, missing the mark. Now, in terms of God's law, the front sight is the individual command that applies in a particular situation. And the rear sight is the two great love commands and the three radiator commands, justice, mercy, and faith. That's the rear sight on the law of God. You're supposed to look through those commands anytime you look at an individual command. If you don't, you're going to miss the mark. It's not enough to have a front sight. It's not enough to have individual commands. You also need a rear sight. So, as you go through the Christian life, when it comes to applying any individual command, make sure that you're looking through the rear sight of loving God with all you are, of loving your neighbor as yourself, and justice, mercy, and faith. Make sure you're looking through that at the individual command. So, a lot of situations aren't that difficult, but some are. Some are. And before you apply any individual command in a difficult situation, let me urge you to back up and do this. Back up, look at the situation again, and say, let me bring one thing into this situation. Let me start with loving God with everything I've got and loving my neighbor as myself. Let me just start with that. Where does that take me? Does it point me in the direction... I was already starting out with, with this individual command I was considering. If it's not taking you in that direction, something's wrong. You aren't lining up the sights right. You're aiming with the front sight only. If they do line up, then do this. Say, okay, let me bring in justice, mercy, and faith. Doing right by God and people, doing unto God and others as I would have them do unto me, 
and being true and faithful. Let me bring that into view. Where does that take me? What direction does that point me in? If it takes you in the right direction that you were already lining up with the individual command you're considering, then you're applying God's word properly and chances are you're going to hit the mark. But if you're not, if it's not lining up, you're not applying the word of God right. And remember, the front sight and the rear sight don't fight one another. Okay? They're best friends. If they're not lined up, that's our problem. If the word of God and the commandments of God seem to be fighting one another, that's not a problem with them. They're best friends. The problem is with us. Now, I mentioned how zeal can lead us to try to aim with the front sight only. And we always need to look through the rear sight. Let me also mention how, that a lack of zeal can lead us to try to aim with the rear sight only. You get the Christian who says, love God and my neighbor. That's what's important. I don't need to go to church. It's okay if I sleep with my girlfriend. Now, there you have a guy with some general concepts. What he needs is a front sight. He needs a front sight that says, God says if you love your girlfriend, you won't sleep with her. God says if you love him, you will gather with his other people to worship him on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week. So if your tendency is a lack of zeal for God, what you need is a front sight. If you're zealous for the Lord, or you're afraid of the consequences of not being zealous, you will tend to look at everything with the front sight only. And what you need is a rear sight. You need to bring much more in view the love commands and justice, mercy, and faith. Let me end with this. What we all have a tendency to do as sinners, even as redeemed sinners, is to want to hide from God's light just a little bit. Just a little bit. Because God's light is bright. And from his word, he just shines it straight in our face. And we don't want to turn all the way away from the light. We don't want to turn our backs on it. We just kind of want to turn sideways so it's not so bright in our face. If we can just hide from the light just a little bit, that makes the Christian life a lot more manageable. It makes us able to convince ourselves that we're doing good a lot better. There are two ways to hide from the light. You can hide in generalities or you can hide in particulars, all right? You can hide by getting away from everybody or you can hide in a crowd. If you're a Christian who is lacking a heart for God, lacking zeal for God, if you tend to have more of a laid-back personality, those kind of things, for whatever reasons, there are some Christians who want to hide in generalities. Love God and neighbor. Golden rule. That's all I need to know. They're hiding in generalities. They don't want to hear any more specifics. They don't want a front sight that's going to make them line up the way that they need to be. But in our circles, and we're going to have both kinds of people in every group, but in our circles, we're zealous Christians. Or we at least know we should be zealous Christians. Or we're at least afraid if we're not zealous Christians. Or we're at least supposed to act like or seem like zealous Christians. We know that. 
It is easier for zealous Christians to hide in the particulars. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. They hid in the particulars. They hid in tithing, mint, and dill, and cumin. They hid in exactly how far are you allowed to walk on the Sabbath. They hid in around 700 different commands that they said, little twigs that they take off of the tree of the law of God, 700 commands approximately that they say that you have to do, things, the do's and don'ts. And so we think, man, what a heart for God these people have. No, they don't. They don't have a heart for God. They're hiding in the particulars. What are they hiding from? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're hiding from that. They're hiding from love your neighbor as yourself. They're hiding from justice. Do right by God and others. They're hiding from mercy. Render unto God and others what you would have them give to you. They're hiding from genuine faithfulness. Be loyal. Be devoted. Be faithful. They're hiding from all of that. All the time. Wearing this mantle. That we're the people who love God and love his word. We're all about, we're on fire for the Lord. And their idea of a Christian life was hideous. That is not where we want to be. So, each of us needs to take heed. And you will have to be honest with your own heart. Are you the kind of Christian who kind of wants to hide just a little bit from the light of God by hiding in generalities? You just want to go through life with a rear sight. You don't want to deal with the front sight. Okay, well, you need a front sight. You need to pay more attention to the front sight and the particulars of how God's word says to love God and others. What does it mean to love God and others? But if you are the kind of Christian, and it may be fear that's making you do this, you understand that fear is motivating you to be all zealous. You understand that that's not a godly motivation. You understand fear is not God's motivation. God hasn't called us to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Love is what motivates us. Fear is a great deterrence, a lousy motivator. If you're being motivated by fear, if you're always feeling pressure to do more, 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 because you're not going to be the zealous Christian you're supposed to be, and God's going to whack you, or other people are going to look down on you. You've got to understand that's not the motivation for the Christian life. And you've got to understand that if you are obeying God in that way, you're disobeying. If you're all concerned with the commands of his word in such a way that you're completely losing sight of loving God and others, justice, mercy, and faith, you have to understand you're being disobedient. You're being disobedient. You're not loving God's word. You're not applying it. And I think that in our circles, we probably have more tendency to do that. And what we need to bring much more in view in our Christian lives as we go through each day is the rear sight of God's word. We need to bring the trunk of the tree and make that front and center. We need to make our foremost thought is, you know, God has saved me. God loves me. What am I supposed to do? Love him back. Love him back. Love him with everything. And love the people he has put you in relationships with. You're free to love them. You don't need to protect yourself because God's going to protect you. You don't have to protect yourself against their sin. He'll do that. 
How does he do that? By letting their sin not affect you? No, by having their sin affect you and then using it to make you more like his son. You don't need to worry about yourself. You don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to put yourself forward. You don't need to do all that kind of stuff. You're free to love, justice, mercy, and faith. We need a lot more to go through each day with those things front and center. And then only as we're confronted with different difficult situations do we really need to start thinking about, okay, exactly what does that mean in this circumstance? And let me also mention that when you get into a difficult circumstance and you feel like the commands of God's word are fighting one another and you don't know how to determine God's will and you don't know what being faithful means or what being loving means, you need to go to come to me. Come to one of the elders. Go to a mature Christian that you know and get them to help you understand what's the rear sight, what's the front sight, and how do you line them up in this situation. I commend all these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.